Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a pediatrician who specializes in cystic fibrosis tells about the exciting new medication that could help turn cystic fibrosis into a manageable disease. While we're really delighted to have this to offer for the patients that'll help, no one's taking a victory lap yet, not until it's done. And a family doctor provides advice for how to approach this year's flu season and what to do if you get sick. The best we can do, get vaccinated. Make sure that if you're sick, you protect your sickness from others. So wear a mask, cover a cough, avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. And certainly if you're sick, don't go to school, don't go to work, don't go shopping. All that, along with a selection from The Healing News, coming up after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we'll learn about what to expect from this year's flu season, along with advice for how to tell a cold from a flu. But first, we'll hear all about a significant new cystic fibrosis medication. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. A new cystic fibrosis medication was recently approved by the FDA, and here to talk about it is the medical director of the cystic fibrosis program at Upstate, Dr. Christopher Fortner. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Fortner. Thanks. Now, to start with, I understand you've done some paid work as a speaker for Vertex, which is the maker of this new medication. Yes, I have. Um, but for today's broadcast. I'm, I'm speaking as somebody who takes care of children with cystic fibrosis and the CF center director. So I'm, I'm not a Vertex representative today. Okay. Well, tell us about this medicine. What is it and how does it work? So the, the new medicine, I think to, to talk about how it works, we have to do a quick review of what is wrong in cystic fibrosis. Uh, cystic fibrosis is a genetic disease where one specific protein called CFTR, uh, because of mutations, doesn't form correctly and doesn't work in the body. And what CFTR does when it is working is it forms a tiny channel or a tube that allows chloride to flow across the cell membranes. And with that tube in place, that lets salt and water move across sort of the linings of the body. So without it, they, they get you know, too salty of sweat. They have very sticky mucus in their airways. Uh, the same sticky mucus can happen in the pancreas, the intestines, the sinuses. Um, so th those are what happens when it doesn't work. So what Trikafta does, and the ingredients in it are Alexacaftor, Tezacaftor, and Ivacaftor. Uh, some people call it the triple therapy, but the, the name that they gave it was Trikafta. And what that does is it targets the Delta F508 or F508-DEL mutation, which is the most common mutation in the CFTR gene. And about 90% of CF patients have at least one copy of Delta F508. Those patients who have this, that, that mutation causes more than one problem when the cells try to form the, the tube or the channel. So the protein that's supposed to make up the channel doesn't fold correctly. And the cells are able to recognize that that doesn't look like a good channel to me, so I'm going to just you know, not even send it up to where it belongs. It won't work right. So two of the ingredients in Trikafta, the Alexacaftor and Tezacaftor, those work to help it fold better. It fold it into a, a, a tube-like enough shape that the cells won't reject it. They'll send it up to the top of the cell where it belongs, where it could do its job. But there's a third problem. Once it gets there with the Delta F508 mutation, it still has one end of the tube is closed. And so the third ingredient, the Ivacaftor component, that helps keep the tube open once it's in place. So with those three ingredients working together, the CF protein will work better than, you know, Delta F508 mutation alone, but still not quite as well as a CF protein that has no mutations. So Trikafta is three medicines. It really is. Okay. Um, is it three different pills or three different? Strangely enough, it is three pills, but there's two morning pills and one evening pill. 
The two pills in the morning contain all three ingredients. The one pill at night only contains the ivacaftor ingredient. And the reason for that is the ivacaftor doesn't have as long of a half-life. The other two ingredients will last you know, more than 24 hours and stay in people's systems once they take it. But the other one has to be replenished after 12 hours. So were all three of these drugs new or did the... Actually, they... no. Hmm. Um, the, really, this is a building on another Vertex product uh, called Simdico, which has Tezacaftor and Ivacaftor in it. Uh, that third ingredient, the Alexacaftor, is the only new component. Wow. How soon does it work if someone starts taking this medicine? How soon until they see any effect? So in the clinical trials, they, they reported an improvement within, they, they had measuring points at four weeks and at 24 weeks, and there was definite improvement within four weeks. Um, from patient experiences, they feel it pretty much, you know, within the first couple of days of starting it, they start to feel something is different in a good way. So talk to me about the symptoms that they live with that are uh, alleviated with this. What, what did they notice first? So, you know, in, in the clinical trials that were published, they were just published at the end of last month, and they came out on the same day. One was in the New England Journal of Medicine, and the other was in the Lancet. And I'll probably talk more about the New England Journal article because that one focused on people who have only one Delta F508 uh, and a second mutation that is not responsive to any of the other modulators out there like Simdico. So these are people who previously had nothing and now can start a modulator. But the, the improvement in symptoms, you know, the, there's some things that kind of go along with CF with that thick mucus. Most of these patients have a daily cough or a nightly cough, and often that cough is productive, and often that cough is difficult to get the mucus to clear, you know, because it is so sticky. So, you know, some of the patients noticed in it, and, and this is not from the trial, this is just from people who have started in the last few weeks, some of them reported their cough just kind of faded away. Others said, well, I coughed out a bunch of stuff the first couple of days, but it felt really good because I knew it was getting out and not, you know, just more building up and overflowing. So uh, there, there's a definite improvement in cough. There's a validated symptom score that they use to kind of give a number to, you know, what got better, whether it's, you know, cough, congestion, shortness of breath, wheezing, um, amount of mucus they cough out. And, and with those scores, they, in the trial, saw about a 20-point improvement. And even compared to the other modulators out there, there's really nothing else that comes close in terms of, of symptoms uh, improvement. So is this a cure for cystic fibrosis? That's a great question. And I, I, set the, I personally set the bar really high to call something a cure. You know, when I think of a cure, I think, well, we did that, and now you don't have CF anymore. So it's not quite a cure. Um, because they still have to take this every day. Uh, if you stop taking the Trikafta, the Delta F508 mutation is still present, and it's not going to fold correctly, and the body's going to go back to you know, having the sticky mucus and everything it had before. So it, it's not really a cure, but it is far and away the, the most effective modulator therapy we have. It's the best workaround for any of the CFT, CFTR mutations yet. What do you think Trikafta will do for the life expectancy of someone with CF? So I think that's a great question. It's, it's a little too early to tell, um, you know, because the study was only six months long. But I think it's going to really improve the life expectancy by a lot. Uh, the, they saw an improvement in lung function of about 14% for patients who were new to Trikafta. And that 14% that improvement was stable over the whole six months of the trial. The other things they saw was the frequency of lung infections or, you know, need for antibiotics to treat lung infections went way down, uh, went about 63% reduced when they were on Trikafta versus not having it. And it's those recurrent lung infections that lead to the lung damage that shortens the life in CF. So it could really have a dramatic improvement, not just for life expectancy and how long they'll live, but they're living, you know, the more, more days without symptoms and feeling wow. better. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith. I'm talking about a new medication for cystic fibrosis with Dr. Christopher Fortner, who's the medical director of the Cystic Fibrosis Program at Upstate. Now, the FDA approved this drug for what age range of patients? So it's approved for people 12 and up who have, one, who have cystic fibrosis with one F508-DEL mutation. 
So anyone younger than 12, do you anticipate that that'll be available to them sometime in the future? We hope so. I know they are studying in that, studying it in that age group now. Uh, they, they need to find out, you know, is it safe in that age and what are the right doses for, for children under 12? So they're looking at people six and up right now in clinical trials. And if that's successful and if it follows the pattern that they've done with other modulators, they'll go on to study it in people, you know, two to six years old and possibly even younger. Now, do, do people um, find out that they have cystic fibrosis at birth, or what age is the typical age? Most people these days are diagnosed at birth. Uh, okay. Cystic fibrosis is one of the disorders that's on the, the New York State new, newborn screen. So when the baby is first born, they send a little sample to the state lab to test for metabolic disorders and other, you know, other possible genetic disorders, and CF is one of those. So usually we learn by the time the baby's a couple weeks old, whether they're likely to have CF or not. So if this drug worked in children, it might be more beneficial for someone who took it at birth because they wouldn't have the years, up to 12 years of damage to their lungs and their body, right? I think you're exactly right. And some of the things that we've seen with other modulators that, you know, again, not quite as effective as Trikafta and not, you know, not targeting the same mutation, but one of them is approved down as young as six months old, and we've even seen not just decrease in, in lung infections, but improvements in pancreas function that, you know, when they were born, their pancreas wasn't working to break down food at all. So we've seen some recoveries in that. So I do think starting it young would be, you know, as long as it's safe, would be tremendously helpful in prolonging or preventing the complications from CF. Now let's talk about some of the side effects of Trikafta. Um, why do people have to take it with foods that contain fat? So the reason to take it with a fat-containing food is basically for the absorption of the molecule. It, it binds to the fat in the food, and it gets absorbed by the intestines much more effectively. When they did drug levels in the blood, if they took it without food, they really didn't, didn't. absorb the drug very well. Um, and why do you have to avoid grapefruit? So that's one of the drug interactions. Um, the, this drug is metabolized in the liver, and there are you know, grapefruits and Seville oranges, certain foods will speed up the liver metabolism of the drug. Okay. And so that must be why doctors uh, monitor liver function for people on this drug, right? That, that's one of the reasons they monitor it. They've, they've also seen, you know, because it is cleared by the liver, sometimes the liver, you know, reacts to it by, you know, some liver injury. So we, we watch very carefully in the first year they're on it. We have to check liver function every three months. Is there anyone um, with CF who should not take Trikafta? Is there any contraindication? So I would say if they're allergic to any of the ingredients, you know, any of the three ingredients in it, um, perhaps they had tried Simdaco in the past, um, or if their liver doesn't tolerate it would be another reason to not take it. And obviously, you know, if it's not available in their age range or we don't know the dose for them yet, you know, they'll, they'll have to keep waiting with us. What, uh, the patients who are taking this, do they still have to do the mucus breaking up technique that they have? had to do before the medicine? That's an awesome question because CF patients spend a lot of their day, not a lot of their day, but you know, up to an hour a day doing chest clearance and you know, inhaled therapies to thin out the mucus or make it easier to cough out. And the truth is we don't know. Um, interestingly, that's one of the things that the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation is going to be studying because I think as people feel better and have less mucus in there, some are naturally just going to stop you know, well, I don't have any mucus in my chest, so I'm not going to do my airway clearance because there's nothing to get out. But others are going to be like, my doctor said to do this, so I'm going to keep doing it because, you know, in the clinical trial, they didn't stop any of the airway clearance. So that 14% improvement in lung function, that was in addition to continuing all their regular therapies. So the CF Foundation is starting a study, um, probably going to start in 2020, where they're going to see, do you get worse if you stop, you know, one inhaled airway clearance therapy versus a different airway inhaled airway clearance therapy. And so that way maybe we can answer the question of, do you need to keep mm. doing this? Well, let's talk about the financial costs because this drug's pretty expensive, right? It, it is very expensive. You know, and there you get into questions of, well, how much can you put, you know, a year of life, you know, what cost can you put or dollar value can you put on a year of life or, um, you know, what is it worth to not, you know, be in the hospital getting IVs. 
but the the overall cost is extremely expensive. I don't know really anyone who could pay out of pocket for it. So insurances and you know protecting people from insurance clauses that prohibit a pre-existing condition because CF is a pre-existing condition from being born mm-hmm. if you have the mutation. So it I don't know how it would be affordable without insurance. Um, I do believe that you know Vertex is committed to making sure people could get the medicine and not be you know for cost reasons, unable to afford it. But the, the ideal method to do that is to, to get them some health coverage, some health insurance. Now, what about those 10% of people with cystic fibrosis who don't have this CFTR mutation? Because this drug is not for them. It's not designed to work for them. What, is there any progress toward a medicine that would help them? So, yeah, I those are the ones that at this year's CF conference that just finished up at the beginning of this month, there's a real push for what do we do for those that this isn't going to help. And there there are studies out there. There are new ideas out there. And the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation has committed to putting $500 million into research into therapies that will help get the CF protein to work better for patients who don't have a Delta F508 mutation. So some strategies like gene editing or gene replacement or protein replacement they're they're attacking this from a lot of different angles and you know the main thing they're doing is supporting research and that you know my hope is that you know some of these researches may not only need to better treatments for those who don't have the F508 del but possibly one of those will be a cure you know you do this once and you don't have CF anymore so i'm really really pleased that while while we're really delighted to have this to offer it for the patients that'll help no one's taking a victory lap yet, not until it's done. You know, we, you know, we continue to fundraise for the CF Foundation. They continue to invest in research until everyone, CF, everyone who has CF has a cure or a therapy out there. Oh, good. Well, thank you to Dr. Christopher Fortner, the Medical Director of Upstate's Cystic Fibrosis Program. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, are you prepared for this year's flu season? From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. If you haven't done so already, it's time to make sure you're protected against seasonal flu because flu season is upon us. Here with me in the HealthLink on Air studio to talk about this year's flu season is Dr. Jared Bagatelle, a family medicine physician who oversees employee and student health at Upstate. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air. Thank you, Amber. Thanks for having me. Now, from what I understand, Australia had a very um, an unusually early and fairly severe flu season this year. What does that mean for America? That's a very good question, and it's likely too early to really know what that means for us. But what we know, what happened with Australia, is their flu season began in April, which was two months earlier than usual for them, and it actually persisted into October. So not only was it early, it was was protracted. And what was interesting is that the dominant strain of flu was uh, H3N2, which has some significance because back in 2017, that was the worst Australian outbreak in 20 years that they'd had. So they saw the same flu strain go through Australia, and that actually preceded our very, very bad year of 2017-18, where we had nearly 80,000 deaths due to that H3N2. So we have to keep our eyes on... uh, on on the local symptoms so and, and where things are moving, yeah. And and we look at Australia because of it's the opposite hemisphere. Or? Yeah, in the southern hemisphere, their winter months are opposite our winter months. So we're able to have the benefit of anticipating how it went through them to gauge how it may be for us. But there's so much space and time that happens in, beto- uh, in right. between. Well, I want. Are they watching us? Our flu season for their yes, next one. So Ar- around the world, there are at least uh, 100 
flu experts and, and local stations that are keeping an eye on things so they know how to mix and match the appropriate flu vaccine in anticipation of what's coming ahead. You said H three N two. What 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 does that mean? That's a that's a great question, and it's really uh, it's really the magic and what what makes the flu so difficult to follow, track, and protect against. Uh, essentially, with influenza, there are generally two types of seasonal flu. There's type A and type B, and those are our seasonal influenzas. Now, type A can infect humans and animals, but they are the ones that are the potential for the pandemics. The type A usually is more severe, uh, and type B only infects humans. And those symptoms overall are generally more mild, and we often see the flu B strains after or toward the end of the flu season. But throughout the flu season, we're seeing both types A and type B. Um, but the very important uh, distinction is the type A. It's a very unique virus in that the outer coat of, its, uh, of the virus had these protein spikes. And the protein spikes are labeled the hemagglutinin, or H, the H, and the neuraminidase, which is the N. So that's where the H and the N come from. And you toss it up, there are now 18 different versions of H, and 11 different versions of N. So you could imagine the potential variety of H's and N's that we see. Um, very familiar H1N1, bird flu, okay. the Spanish flu, H3N2. Uh, they leave their mark because they left such devastation when they became pandemics themselves. Um, interestingly, the type B, the flu type B, only has one surface protein. So we, uh, it's not that we don't worry about it so much. It's a little easier to keep track of. It doesn't change as often as the type A does. So if you have one of those variations of, of one of the type A's, um, does that protect you from getting it again later in life? It's a great question. Yes. Once we are exposed to a certain flu type, uh, we build uh, immunity to it. How long that immunity lasts is variable depending on a person's uh, general health or, or where they fall in the age spectrum. Having said that, it is absolutely important to get an annual seasonal flu vaccine because that is going to prime the system to be prepared for the most anticipated strains coming through. So the flu vaccines currently are, uh, include four types that they protect us against, two A's, and two Bs. That's for this year's? It's for this year's, and okay. they're called quadrivalent, so mm -hmm. they cover four different strains, uh, two As and two Bs. And it's good to know that the two As were updated uh, with this flu vaccine to anticipate, again, the H1N1. It was updated with a pandemic of 2009, so it had that like strain, and also the H3N2-like strain. So what went around Australia we hopefully will be protected, protected against. against. Okay, well, that's good to know. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about who needs to be vaccinated. Sure. So if you had the flu last season, you need to be vaccinated again this year. That doesn't protect you for the coming year, right? Absolutely. And Amber, if you had the flu last week or the flu last month and you hadn't received a flu vaccine, you should receive a flu vaccine as well. And the flu vaccine is covering us against four strains of flu. So you got sick with the flu, whichever strain that was, there still may be other strains floating around that have yet to, uh, to introduce themselves to so you. So you could potentially get the flu more than once. Absolutely. Because it would be a different strain. each. Absolutely. And that's not uncommon. And all too often, people misinterpret that the flu vaccine may have given them the flu when that does not happen it was uh, more likely they were exposed to somebody with either a different strain that they hadn't yet had or, um, or the flu itself. So who needs to be vaccinated? Well, the CDC recommends everyone over age six months be vaccinated. So babies all the way? Uh, starting at six, six months. months. So starting at six months all the way, there is no uh, upper age limit. So pregnant women too? Pregnant women primarily are in that group that are indicated to have seasonal flu vaccines. Uh, there are certain populations of folks that may be at increased risk 
of complications of the flu. And interestingly, the, the flu knocks you out for seven days, two weeks, but what actually kills people are the secondary infections or the complications that are the result of being infected with the flu virus. So if a person is, genuine, is uh, generally uh, immune compromised or their health is at risk because they're a chronic smoker, uh, chronic lung disease, heart disease, kidney disease, uh, cancer treatments, uh, or, or even just older age, um, the immune system is already compromised and uh, getting kicked once is tough, but getting kicked uh, over and over again is really the, the concern and the most common reason why people die from the flu is the, the secondary infections that people get. So they get like pneumonia. They, get, they or would get pneumonia or, or sepsis, blood poisoning. But pneumonia is typically what we see. And those folks whose uh, immune systems or, or overall health isn't uh, well enough to fight against what's ahead after the flu hits are precisely the things we're trying to prevent. I've heard about a high-dose flu shot. Yeah. What, what, that sounds new. Did we have that last year? Or? We had it last year. I don't know exactly how many years we've had it now, but it's been available, and it is offered for those people over age 65. Now, um, the American uh, College of, uh, of uh, Immunization Practice and the CDC uh, suggest it, uh, but there's no uh, overall uh, clear recommendation that if you are over age 65, you must get this vaccine. That's a that's a discussion to be had with your individual individual healthcare provider. Uh, it's generally recommended that if you're over 65, the high dose is a is a is a option to consider. The theory behind it is that you're getting a little extra boost of the antigen within the vaccine which will hopefully prime the immune system to last longer than. Typically, a flu vaccine is going to cover somebody at least six months. That'll be through most typical flu seasons, unless, as Australia saw, it goes longer than expected. Uh, in that case, if someone, again, in theory, older than 65, had the vaccine really early in the season, let's say August, and the flu peaked later in April or May, uh, they may or may not be as well protected as they could be, and the high-dose vaccine is, uh, was developed uh, with that uh, intention in mind. I've got some more questions about that, but you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking about flu season with Dr. Jared Bagatelle, a family medicine physician who oversees employee and student health here at Upstate. So uh, allergies, people who have allergies to eggs, are they able to get the flu shot? Yeah. They, they can. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, three years ago now, the CDC uh, reported and recommended that people with a history of egg allergy who experienced only hives after exposure to eggs should receive the flu vaccine without any specific precautions. Um, people who report having had anaphylactic reaction, which is a much more serious reaction that might require uh, you to be uh, resuscitated, revived, or given epinephrine or, or otherwise, even in folks who have had that reaction to eggs, the more, se more severe than hives, these folks may also receive an age-appropriate immunization vaccine, influenza vaccine, um, but the vaccine should be administered in a medical setting where uh, a healthcare provider could supervise it and monitor in case there were any severe allergic reaction. Is there anyone who's recommended not to be vaccinated? Yes. Those folks who should not get a vaccine, understanding that there is the shot, which is inactivated, and there's also the option for the nasal flu vaccine, which is a live vaccine. So... In general, those folks who should not get a flu vaccine is anyone who's experienced a severe allergic reaction to a previous flu vaccine. Severe allergic reaction is anaphylaxis, okay. sudden shortness of breath, clutching chest pain, sweatiness, faintness, a fainting spell, uh, even severe abdominal cramping associated with faintness uh, or profound hives, allergic reaction that the skin is, is showing those folks should not get another flu vaccine, except for that. 
Okay. Everyone, everyone is available uh, and certainly uh, safe to get. If, if you've got a moderate or severe illness that's acute, uh, you're going to put the vaccine on, on hold until you feel better. But for general mild illness, such as a mild cold, a sniffle, uh, your allergies are acting up, uh, there is absolutely no reason you why you should get, wait okay. to get the flu shot. It takes two weeks to do its magic and protect you as it's intended. Uh, do not wait. Um, there's also an extremely rare condition that people hear about, and it's called Guillain-Barre syndrome. It's a big word. It's a neurologic condition that's extremely rare, and it's a progressive um, a weakness. Um, back in 1977, when the World Health Organization and those who prepared for the flu season then uh, in mass produced a large amount of vaccine against what was perceived the swine flu at that time. And so they did a mad rush, and they gave a lot of people vaccines in that period of time, and they saw that there were a amount of people who developed Guillain-Barre syndrome, and they made this potential association to that vaccine with Guillain-Barre syndrome. Since then, we haven't seen that uh, as much, certainly, uh, and it is only uh, a precaution that if you've had a Guillain-Barre syndrome-like illness within six weeks after getting a flu vaccine, that you should mention that to your healthcare provider before getting a flu vaccine. Good to know. Yeah, it's a rare disease, and it's not caused by the flu vaccine. Okay. Yeah, just wanna... We'll be right back with more information about influenza with Dr. Jared Bagatelle. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. HealthLink on Air. I'm Amber Smith talking with Dr. Jared Bagatelle about seasonal influenza. Now you mentioned swine flu and earlier we talked about bird or avian flu. Uh, uh, Now animals can transmit or get uh, A, type A influenza? Yeah, that's the, the, the magic and the mystery behind the type A is only only humans can share type B, but type A can be shared amongst uh, among species. So birds and other animals, birds and pigs primarily, hence the avian or bird type flu or the swine flu or pig flu. Uh, certainly, what, a, what about domestic animals, dogs it's, and cats? It, it's, it's a great question. And uh, type A has been uh, found in waterfowl, so the ducks. Uh, certainly chickens are the big bird kingdom that we look at. Um, pigs also been discovered and reported in, in whales and horses and seals, oh my, and, uh, and, even, uh, and even cats. But that does not mean we, sh- we shouldn't snuggle up to our cats or our dogs or our pet whales, should we have any, uh, or horses, uh, if they've got a little bit of a cold. It is extremely unusual that people get influenza infections directly from animals. The magic is when a bird virus or a pig virus gets shared with a human virus and then a new concoction is developed. That's the pandemic risk. That's what happened three times in the 20th century. It was 1918, it was... With the Spanish flu, it was 1918. The Spanish flu, and there remind the listeners that worldwide, 500 million people were infected with the flu, and up to 10% died. Right. Profound. That was the discovery, eventually in retrospect, um, of the H1N1. The next pandemic hit in 1957, and then after that was 1968, when the H3N2, we're coming full circle now, right? H3N2, I mentioned they were seen in Australia. It's in our vaccine this year. H3N2 is a little bit of that swine flu. Now in 2009, you might remember 2009 as recently as then, we had another pandemic. And pandemic means that the flu is spread throughout the world as opposed to the epidemic or the seasonal flu we see in pockets of communities or within countries. 
The pandemic is rare. It's that special mix of bird or pig with human that gets converted into this, into this potentially lethal strain because nobody's seen it before. It's a new mix. So 2009 was a Mexican flu, and interestingly, it was a combination of avian, bird, swine, pig, and human. Wow. Well, let me switch subjects a little bit in terms of how the flu is spread. Um, is it true that a person is contagious and potentially spreading the flu before they even know they've got it? Yeah, that's the other scary part of the flu. Again, for the listeners out there, the flu is not just a simple cold or, or the sniffles. It's, it's a serious condition that can, be, that, can be, that, that can contribute to death, certainly. But it sort of starts as something you don't really, it doesn't announce itself as Abs- influenza, right? Absolutely. So. I want to briefly explain as best I can how the magic of this virus works. All viruses to live and multiply need to have a living cell as its host. Guess what? We are the host. You're the host of this show, and hopefully you're not the host for the next flu virus coming through. So the, the virus gets into the mucosa of the respiratory tract. It then, again, I mentioned the H and the N. So it's the H spike protein of that envelope that, like a hook, catches onto the uh, mucosal cell. It gets engulfed into the cell, and lo and behold, it's now hijacking that cell's ability to multiply its RNA or its genetic code. And within 12 hours, that one virus is turned into one million viruses. Then the magic of the N, the neuraminidase, acts like a hammer to break itself out of that cell that it borrowed for those 12 hours to then share the millions of viruses with the organism itself that was hosting as well through a cough and a sneeze that's going to happen 24 hours after with the rest of the world, where it then goes on to borrow somebody else's body to develop and spread. It is profound and amazing how this virus has existed for as long as it has and how we can't keep up with it. So the best we can do is use the tools we got with the knowledge we know from past experiences. Get vaccinated. Absolutely. If it's 40% effective, it's better than zero. In a good year, 40 to 60% effective. Make sure that if you're sick, you protect your sickness from others. So wear a mask, cover a cough, avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. And certainly if you're sick, don't go to school, don't go to work, don't go shopping. Um, If we stay, potentially in theory, at least six feet apart from each other, Uh, we wouldn't be able to spread it to each other, except through inanimate objects like tables and such, because it could live for some time on a a table. But wash your hands frequently, 20 seconds, warm water, soap, or hand sanitizer. What's your recommendation in terms of treatment, aside from staying away from people? I'm sure sure rest. Absolutely. You want to make sure you get rest, you stay very well hydrated, um, another thing that, that may be helpful would be to keep your nasal passages moisturized. So nasal saline spray or a humidifier in the bedroom. Uh, the reason flu spreads commonly in winter months is not so much because of a cold. It's more likely due to the low humidity. So if we can keep our nose doing what it was intended to do for us, which is keep the air moist and warm before we get it, it also filters out some of the bad stuff, um, keep it going, especially if you have a cold, it's going to be overtaxed and it may not work as well. So you're more susceptible to getting that one or the million strains of virus in a, in a droplet that somebody sneezed upon your hand that you rubbed in your nose and then <laughs> it told two friends and so forth. Is there a signal that you need to get medical attention? At what point do you need to see your doctor? Sure. That's an excellent question, and it really depends on uh, the person's overall general health to begin with. If we're looking at a little kid, somebody under age six months who themselves are unable to be vaccinated, as I mentioned, it's for six months and older, everybody around that newborn and infant need to be protected. That's the only chance this newborn has 
to prevent right. from protect. getting the flu. Right. Uh, so if there were an acute illness in someone under age six months or really anybody under two or a, a young child who may have asthma, who may have uh, other um, other comorbidities, as we say, other medical conditions that may increase the risk of secondary infection, as we mentioned, or uh, just uh, their overall health could not tolerate being ill with the flu. Um, asthma is extremely common, and certainly in kids as well who may or may not yet be diagnosed. So you want to be mindful of that kid who may have recurring coughs or recurring wheezing or may need a, a nebulizer treatment or, or an inhaler to help open up the air tubes. It's also important to know that that flu vaccine that I talked about that comes in a nice nasal spray so I don't have to get a shot, um, it is a precaution in folks who have asthma because the live vaccine nasal spray is something that may not be uh, used uh, in those folks who have asthma. So um, it's important to talk about all that with, with your healthcare provider and your personal doctor. Um, if you feel awful and sick and you're generally healthy, some Tylenol, some rest, some fluids. If you feel otherwise ill in a way that feels disturbing in your soul, get out there and, and seek immediate attention. So let's talk about the symptoms of flu and how you go about telling the difference between whether it's a flu or a cold, or I should say the flu or sure. a cold, right? Because a lot of people would say, I've, I've got a, a bit of the flu. Yeah. But do they necessarily know or mean that they've got influenza A, H3N2? Sure. Right? The, the term is often used quite loosely, uh, colloquially, and it certainly, as a medical provider, it carries a lot of weight. Diagnoses carry a lot of weight for the healthcare team as well as for the patient themselves. Um, and it's interesting you say the flu. There's the flu, and as we talked about, there's the the flu. Like this is the pandemic flu. The one that's going around. Um, but generally, generally speaking, um, those who have had the flu uh, certainly uh, would be able to speak uh, best <laughs> to how different it was to all the other colds they may have had. The primary distinction between the flu and a common cold is the sudden onset of the symptoms of uh, usually profound achiness, dry cough, uh, sore throat. When you say sudden, yeah, do it, you mean 1215 There are people happening. who have described the, the way the virus has to replicate and multiply within uh, your body, it's kind of like uh, the popcorn in the popcorn maker just sitting there getting ready to go. No popcorn's made yet. It's just kind of, it's going, it's going, it's going, and then bam, all this popcorn hits and comes out of your popcorn maker. That's what happens with the flu virus. It hits you at 11.57 a.m. People know when they started to feel profoundly achy, feverish, uh, teeth chattery, uh, chilly, um, and along with a, a dry cough, a headache. Interestingly, the headache people have described uniquely as that kind of headache where when you move your eyes, your head hurts. Oh. It's just a, one of the symptoms that uh, patients have described to me over the years that certainly would be unique to a common cold, um, if you feel so awful that you don't feel like you can get up and go, that's more likely the flu versus a common cold where you got some stuffy nose, a sore throat, maybe a little bit of a wet cough, um, but you're not having a big fever. You're not really feeling achy. You feel like you could do this with a, with a cup of tea and some Tylenol and get up and go, and there's no fever, certainly. Um, if you feel like you can get up and go and you have these symptoms, it's more likely a cold. But if you feel it like you can't get up, <laughs> that's the flu. And again, there are variations on the theme. So we mentioned that there are two distinct types of seasonal flu. Type A, I'm primarily describing. Type B can also present as such, but often is a little milder, but still more severe than the common cold. But there are variations on themes with respect to which strain you got, um, even perhaps how much sleep you got over the nights before, how susceptible you may be. Uh, how virulent or how strong that strain is that has infected you. There are so many variables, but generally speaking, it's the abrupt onset, it's the profound symptoms of it that should make you think about the flu. Now, if you're an otherwise healthy person, but you fear that, you know, you've had this sudden onset and you feel like it, you probably do have the flu, is there a reason to hurry into the doctor's office um, is there an antiviral that is effective? And then is it important to be tested so that you know for sure whether it's type A or B or whatever? Those are 
great questions. And a lot of folks are wanting to know, what should I do if I think I have the flu? Well, first off, if you're generally healthy, you don't have any medical condition that otherwise compromises your health, you're not a smoker, you don't have underlying asthma, uh, there's no immunosuppression, you're generally healthy, most people with a typical seasonal flu are going to recover on their own and do just fine. It's going to be a rough five to seven days where the, the feverish feeling is going to go away within four days, but that, that achiness may resolve within seven. The cough may linger for a week or two, but it'll pass. Certainly, there is an antiviral available, and the antiviral medicine is best used when the treatment is begun within the first, ideally, 12 hours of the onset of symptoms, but can be helpful up to and not likely beyond 72 hours after the onset of the symptoms uh, with no guarantee. And the best it can do is reduce the duration of the, the flu symptoms by one day. Oh. It also can blunt the severity of the symptoms as well, which is what most people are looking for when they feel so sick. Um, I've seen patients I've treated over the years who I've provided them the antiviral medication within uh, hours of the onset of symptoms, and the next day uh, they call uh, uh, with gratitude. Uh, it can work that quickly in some folks. By no means is it the cure-all. It's not the panacea. It's certainly not the fountain of youth. It's, uh, it's available and primarily indicated for those people who are otherwise at risk for secondary complications, uh, complications due to the flu. Generally healthy, you'll get through it. Don't necessarily need the antiviral, it'll save you a day. Someone who has asthma or is a smoker or is immune compromised, absolutely. See your doctor, work it through, that antiviral medicine can potentially be life-saving. Life well, lots of good information. Thank you so much to Dr. Jared Bagatelle, Family Medicine Doctor and Director of Employee and Student Health at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's Literary and Visual Arts Journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Donna Emerson is a freelance photographer and author of six books of poetry. She lives now in California and sent us a poem about living through one of their recent terrible fires. Here is her poem, In the Retelling. I dream of yellow-orange flames flashing through pine trees. Stifling smoke startles me awake. I don't hear a smoke alarm. I bolt up, grab my crutches my fifth night after knee surgery, drag my new leg to the back door. Sickly yellow light through the house. I can't make out flames through the ochre off-color haze outdoors. But seeing our trees bent back by strong north wind, choking on smoke, I slam the door shut. Big fire blowing south, I say. The clock says 2.30 a.m. I cannot rouse my husband, who, also dreaming, says, bad time for a fire. I stumble to my sick room, the house now in ghostly light, all the usual shapes not themselves. In scattered shadows I misstep, fall against the heavy bed frame, my head hitting the headboard. I lie on the floor, confused. Get up, this is a serious fire, I shout toward my husband as I turn on the television. Fire everywhere, jumping roads, even the freeway, Fountain Grove, Bennett Valley, Coffee Park, no warnings, people running, screaming, but the fire outruns them. Cars blocked by fire, hospitals emptying, petalumens prepare to evacuate, that's us. We pack up family photographs, the Emerson Bible, the Roseville vase dad never let us touch, silver baby shoes, mother's and grandmother's journals, my own, 
What of those thousands of people who have not even a minute to take one piece of clothing? Our house does not burn. We cough on smoke, wear face masks for weeks. My asthma requires triple medications. My leg slowly heals. I can't get out to help except hold the hands of those who need to talk, rage, fall apart with a witness. Sometimes recovery is in the retelling. The carpet man spent an hour extra yesterday showing me a photo of his tidy house in Coffee Park and then his black, barren, empty plot after the October fire. His wife awakened at 1.50 a.m. to see their garage and all trees outside ablaze. They left at 2 a.m., October 8, with their three-year-old, two cats, two Rottweilers. No hotel would take them. They drove to his buddies in Salinas. At last, he showed me his new two-story house, as if it were a new child, just built in the same spot as the old. It's all about insurance, he says. I wonder later how often he tells the story as he makes his daily calls. Sometimes recovery is the rebuilding, proving you're still alive, that you saved yourself. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, how physical therapy can help people with Parkinson's disease and how to get through the holiday season if you're grieving. If you missed any of today's show, listen on our website at healthlinkonair.org or do a podcast search for the phrase HealthLink on Air. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.